0: Well, believe me, I realize the task that is before me. I watched as a lot of food was consumed, and I don't have a sermon on gluttony, so you're lucky there. But I have thoroughly enjoyed that good fellowship. I watched Brother Cooper and Jim go in a place to sit down to eat, and they did have a bit of trouble getting in. But without help, they couldn't get out, I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) But they they did have a good time eating. And we did too, didn't we? That was wonderful. Thank you, ladies, for a job well done. Appreciate it so much. I appreciate the good elders and the work that you're doing here and the uh, continuous encouragement that you give to me and to others. And we thank you for that. In the prayer was mentioned some folks dear to our hearts that were here when we started uh, and had become Christian, Brother William Jordan, and had come up to Signal Mountain, had a Bible study with Betty and I, and we've never forgotten that. They've been such a blessing, and Joe Kerr, of course, and uh, all of the Brother Hogwood, I think, was an elder then, and uh, Brother Pope, and I know I probably may have missed one or two. When you get my age, you do that. But uh, all of those folks quite frequently run through our minds and have a special place In our hearts as well as those of you that are here today and your work continues on and their works and we just appreciate the fact that during lifespan we were a privilege to be able to be here to be acquainted with you and it's always special to come back to the White Oak Church of Christ and to stand here. And I took Ryan on Signal Mountain yesterday and showed him where I attempted to give my first talk at the Taft Highway Church of Christ. Had seven pages of notes and didn't see one of them. But I did find out for the first time why pulpits are this big, so you can't see the preacher's knees knocking. My knees were knocking sufficed. I could have threaded the sewing machine, that thing running, I believe. I mean I was scared. Sister Haston, one of my or my first grade school teacher, was there and she said, if that boy ever makes a preacher, anybody can make a preacher. <laughs> and I went over to Mount Leo some years after that fact and spoke at a graduation. And she was there, and I reminded her of that statement. She said she still stood by it. <laughs> and so sometimes you're just better off to leave, leave things alone. But it's been such an honor to be here. Uh, Ryan and I will be traveling back home after services today. Keep us in your prayers as we travel on the roads. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, We read verses sometimes, and we hear verses preached on, and uh, they are read correctly, and the sermons are wonderful. But sometimes, if we're not careful in showing and refuting false doctrine, which we should, we will lose the sight of what the passage is saying and what it means. We have seven ones mentioned in Ephesians 4, and they're not there ...just to refute denominationalism. Now they do that, but that's not their purpose. The purpose of these verses were for the church at Ephesus. And when you look at that in its context... ...and you see how important those verses are... ...they become more meaningful to the Lord's church. And I want you to look as we begin in verse 1... ...where Paul said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord... ...beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all. Now again, somewhat like we did this morning, I want to break these verses down in their component parts. And I want us to look at those seven ones and think of them in the setting that they're found in the book of Ephesians. The Bible says there is one body. Now when I think of the one body, I see unity and organization. I mentioned this morning how that the body is the church, Ephesians 1, 22, 23, and how every member of that body is important. If you read Ephesians 3, 19 to 22, and 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at about verse 13, you'll see the significance of every part of that body. Now in our lesson this morning, we talked about all things working together. And when things work together, you have the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And the unity that is demanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. But I want to emphasize the fact that when the Lord used the word body as an illustration of what the church is, the emphasis would have been upon unity of organization. The church has been organized, established, and set up by our Lord, and you nor I can improve upon it. It is His church. And he has established it the way he wants it. And you and I ought to love it. The Bible says that the church is the finished product of God. The scripture says it this way. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus under good works. A workmanship is a finished product by a craftsman. Jesus established and built his church. And the church is the finished product. And so we don't have any... Special folks in the church, we're all special. You see, every one of us are on the same playing field. And therefore, if a person has one talent, he should thank God for it and use it. If he has two, he ought to thank God for it and use them. If he has five, he ought to thank God for them and use them. You see, the truth is that the one talented man was not condemned because he just had one. He was condemned because he did not use the one God gave him. You see here is the na- analogy of a body and one of the members of the body doing nothing. It's not doing what God intended for that part of the body to do. And so I use the illustration this morning of a dear friend of mine who's dead now. But Bradley Anderson who pulled the lawnmower upon his feet and cut his big toe off. And he said from then on that he thanked God for the other big toe that he had and didn't realize how much he would miss this one when it was gone. And so every part of the body is important. And Paul used that analogy in 1 Corinthians that we mentioned a moment ago, chapter 12, when he said because the eye is an eye and not an ear, it cannot say to the ear, you're not important. Or the ear cannot say to the eye, you're not important. Every member of the body has a function and is important. Now when every member of the physical body does what it's supposed to, you have unity in organization." And when every member of the body of Christ does what they are supposed to do, you have unity in organization. And it always works better when you have the way God wants it to be. And so we have the word body. There is one of them, meaning there is unity in organization. But then he says there's one spirit. There's unity in revelation. You see, the Holy Spirit's work was to come into this world and reveal the mind of God to man. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Jo- uh, the Bible says in John sixteen thirteen, Howbeit when he the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. The Apostle Peter said the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of men. But holy men of God spake as they were moved. That is guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. And so what do we see? We see that the Holy Spirit comes and he reveals the mind of God to man. That's his work and thus we have unity in revelation. Listen ladies and gentlemen. If any craft should live in Timbuktu and take the Bible and the Bible alone, which is the seed of the kingdom, Luke 8, 11, plant that seed into my heart, and though I may live plumb across the world from where you are, you can take the same word and you believe it and you study it and you obey it. And in our paths cross, guess what we're going to teach? We're going to teach the same thing. Because, you see, we're reading the same book given by the same God, through the Holy Spirit of God. And so there is unity in Revelation. So today when you hear people talking about all kinds of stuff that's not found in the Word of God, they're not getting it from the Holy Spirit of God. You may have heard Wesley relate this story. But I was there in the studio when it occurred a woman called, Arise to Truth and said, Listen, God told me I could preach, or the Holy Spirit told me I could preach. Wesley said, well, the Holy Spirit told me you couldn't. And she thought a minute. She said, the Holy Spirit told you that? (laughs) He said, yes, ma'am. The Holy Spirit told me that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. The Holy Spirit told me that women could not be gospel preachers. Not in the sense of preaching the word like we're doing today. Now they can preach. My wife preaches a lot with results. But that's another sermon. But you see, the point is... God has a role and a function for the male and the female. And when you read the Bible, the Word of God will set that straight for you. And so the Bible, the Holy Spirit said, you can't. There's folks call and said, well, the Holy Spirit told me this and told me that. Well, what did He tell you that He didn't tell me here? Anything He told you that He didn't tell me here is too much. And if anything is told less, then it's not enough. You see, we got the Bible. That's God's Holy Spirit giving us the Word. And when we have that, we have unity in Revelation. We'd all be the same thing, speaking the same things, believing the same things, if we were reading the same book and following it. And we tell people in a kind, loving way that no one is more confused in the religious world than those who think that God is speaking to them separate and apart from the Word of God. They're confused and most of the time don't have a clue what they're talking about as far as the Scriptures concerned. And so we're Responsible to try to help them to learn the truth and to see what's going on. But we have the unity of the spirit and the word spirit here carrying with it the idea of unity of organization. And so we have the one body, or unity of organization, the one spirit, the unity of revelation. And then he says we have one hope. There's unity and aspiration. You see what we have here is the one hope. And there's nothing any greater than this one hope. Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 24 that we are saved by hope. And then when you go on a little bit further, the Bible says that hope is the anchor of the soul. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. Peter says that we have been begotten again unto a living or lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1 and 3. And so when we go through the book, and we begin to read the Word of God, we see the marvelous hope that we have, and it is special, isn't it? We have a hope that is beyond any other kind of hope. The Bible says that if in this life only we had hope, we'd be of all men most miserable. You see, if this is it and that's all there is, then we would have miserable lives upon the face of the earth. But hope is that light at the end of the tunnel. Hope is that when we become discouraged and despondent that it is the anchor of the soul and it is that by which we have hope. It's like one fellow said even relative to eternity. If I were to find out at the judgment day I was lost but I knew I'd only be lost for a million years. As long as that may seem I'd have hope of knowing someday I'll be out of here. But he says unfortunately when you die lost there is no hope and he's right. And not only is there no hope then but if it were only true now, that in this life only we had hope, we would be of all men most miserable. Our hope is wonderful, and we are saved by it, and it is the anchor of the soul. And it is that shot in the arm that we need many times when we may be discouraged and things are not going well. Hope is unity of aspiration. And I go places and over 40 years of preaching, and these other preachers have, and you have as well, And you've seen people go through all kinds of troubles and trials and difficulties and heart-wrenching experiences, but you see that little smile come across the face because they know that there's a better place and my hope is in God. And when you have that kind of hope, you see, you can fight through the battles of life. I look at this hope as really kind of just reaching out to us and saying, you know what, you may be going through a hard time now, but you know something, That's just temporary. That's just temporary. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul looked at his afflictions, and (laughs) if you look at his affliction, I wouldn't have called them light, but he said, you know these afflictions I've gone through are light afflictions. He had been beaten and left for dead. He had gone through the most adverse circumstances because he was a Christian you could ever think of, in prison, in stocks, and in bonds. And yet at midnight, he and Silas sang praises to God. Now you can't do that. Without hope in God Almighty. And realizing this affliction is why? Why? It's momentarily. It's just going to be here for a while and it's gone, and never again will you experience that. And so if a person had cancer for fifty years and went through all of the difficulties you could go through in fifty years, it's through. It's over. That's why the Lord said you don't fear a man that killed the body, because that's just temporary. But you fear him that's able to destroy both soul and body. And hell, that's permanent. And so we have to realize and keep the proper perspective that our hope is not in this world only. We have a hope that's bigger than that, and we're looking forward to the time when we can all be with our Heavenly Father in heaven. And so there's the one body, unity of organization. There is the one spirit, unity of revelation, the one hope, the unity of aspiration, and the one Lord. There's unity in authority. We have one Lord. We don't have two Lords. We have one Lord. And that Lord is Lord of lords. He is king of kings. And we have to learn that. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 3 and verse 17. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 and verse 12. The Bible says no other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And on and on the story goes. There's one Lord. There's not Jesus and Buddha. There's not Jesus and Muhammad. There's not Jesus and anyone else. It's either Jesus or it's no one else. You see, no one can do for you what Jesus can do. There is no other name. Under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. And when it says there is no other name, that means there's no other authority. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that he hath exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Philippians 2.11 and following. You see ladies and gentlemen the Bible says there is one Lord. And that Lord is Jesus Christ. And what our problem is to a large degree in our world today, there's just too many lords. And none of them can do what they claim they can except Jesus. Jesus Christ ought to be Lord of your life. He is the one that was once dead but is now alive and alive forevermore. He is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's the one in complete charge. And so what we do, we do in word or deed, we all do by the name or by the authority of the Lord. I got an interesting call one day from a congregation. The preacher was actually talking to me, but he was talking about the congregation. He said, I think we're going to re-baptize everybody over here. And I thought that was interesting. I said, you're going to do what? He said, I'm going to rebaptize. I think everyone here in the congregation. I said, why? Because when they were baptized, they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So I think I'm going to baptize everybody over here. I said, well, you can baptize as many as you want to. It's not going to do them any good. Because you see, when you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you baptize them in the name of the Lord. That's by the authority of the Lord. And I only know of one authority of the Lord that's given relative to baptism, and that is in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Bible says you go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this guy said, well, you have already that from the Catholics. I said, I don't know where you borrowed it from, but I borrowed it from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. But well, if you think I got it from the Catholics, let me go back and recheck just in case you're right. So I turned over and I read it again and said, no, nope, still wrong. But you see, what they failed to realize is, when the Bible says you baptize someone in the name of Jesus Christ, you're baptizing them by the authority of Jesus Christ, is what you're doing And when you understand that, you understand what's going on. Someone might say, I arrest you in the name of the law, by the authority of. And so Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one that's in complete authority. I go through the little thing, and I have it in my Bible down there. We've done it on TV recently. Of those ones, if you can remember from one to seven, you can focus on the Lord's Supper. You may have heard that before, but... Zero represents not a bone of his was broken, and one represents the one Lord. Two represents the two natures, human and divine. Three represents the three crosses, one dying in sin, two sin, four sin. And four representing the garments that were cast into four pieces, the five major wounds. Six representing the last six hours he was on earth, and seven are the seven sayings of the cross. But if you focus on those things when the Lord's Supper is being prepared and given, you can stay focused. Well, we, I do that. And, of course, number one being there's one Lord. There's not two. There's one. And Jesus will not take second place in your life or mine. And whatever we do, we got to do it by his authority, in his name. Because there is none other authority, no other name, under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so when someone says in Acts 2.38, he said that you're to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he's talking about the authority. Well, what authority do we have from Jesus Matthew 28, 19, and 20. When you have that, you've got the best there is to offer because that's what the Word of God has to say about it. So we have the one Lord. And when we have the one Lord, and everyone does, then we've got unity in authority. But then there's the one faith. That's unity in doctrine. There is one faith. That is, there's one faith system. In Romans 10, in verse 17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come by hearing the doctrines and commandments and ideologies and opinions of men, but it comes by hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17. That's how faith comes. And so when I hear the word of God, I believe it, I obey it, I do it, I'm working by faith. You see, there is the idea of unity in doctrine. In Acts 13, you remember Elymas the sorcerer? Paul had to deal with him, and he was trying to to turn away the deputies, Sergius Paulus and others. He was trying to turn them away from the faith. He was turning them away from the faith system. Jude said, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. That's why John said in 2 John 9, Whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And when we walk by faith, we don't walk by sight, 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. And when we do that, we're walking according to the instructions of the Word of God. you got Hebrews 11. All of those folks did what they did by faith. By faith Noah, by faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Israel, by faith Rahab. All of those great characters of the Bible. They did what they did by faith. And when you evaluate the passages, you see God told them what to do. They did it. When they did what God said, they were doing it by faith. It wasn't a leap in the dark that said, well, you know, God didn't say anything about this. I think I'll jump out in the dark and do this by faith. That's not faith at all. Faith is not blind. Faith is able to listen to what God says and act upon the basis of what God says. You know, when you read through the pages of the Bible, you learn so much, and the Bible really becomes living to you. In watching the Good News program this morning on television, Jim read from Galatians 3 as a part of their scripture reading. And that is... a a beautiful text of Scripture. If you have your Bible, just turn over there a minute. Let's just briefly touch a base or two from Galatians 3 that helps us to see unity in doctrine. And so he says there's one faith, not two, one. And when there's one faith, we have unity of doctrine. Now to help you understand this, Paul deals with this in the book of Galatians when he's showing a contrast between the law of Moses and the faith, system. Now watch what he does and how he breaks this thing down so beautifully for us. Verse 21. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? He's talking about the law of Moses. Well, of course not, or God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by that law. Okay. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. The scriptures has concluded what? All under sin. That the promise by faith. You see that? The promise by faith of Jesus Christ. Now not by an individual's personal belief. In the Old Testament people had personal individual belief, didn't they? Well, yeah, they did. We read about it in Hebrews 11 a minute ago. By faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Noah, and so on. All of those guys had faith. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about an individual personal faith. And so he says that uh, they were all under sin. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now look. But before faith came. Well it cannot be an individual faith. They had faith. And so what's he talking about? Before faith came, he's talking about the faith system, the gospel, the New Testament system that's referred to as the faith. And so he says, before faith came, we were kept under the law, that is the law of Moses. Shut up under the faith, now watch, which should afterwards be revealed. What's going to be revealed after the law? Faith. An individual personal faith? No, the faith system. Was going to be real, be re, uh, revealed after, and so he says that it was we were under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. What did it do? It was to bring us to Christ. Well, why in the world would it do that? That we might be justified by faith. That is, be justified by the faith system. Verse twenty-five. But after that faith is come, we're no longer. Under the schoolmaster. After what's come? The faith. (laughs) Not the individual personal faith. That's part of it. But the faith system. (laughs) And so here. Is a beautiful passage. Showing us what he's talking about. Now look. Verse 26. For we are all. The children of God. By. Faith. Now when a denominational preacher reads that, and he makes it your own personal individual faith, he's saying, look, we're all children of God by our individual faith. He's missed it. He's missed the text. He's missed the comparison. He's missed the analogy. He's missed the things that's being said by Paul. Here's the law system. We didn't become just children of God by a law system, but we became children of God through the faith system. Through the doctrine of Christ. And so we are children of God by the faith. Now the actual text, the Greek text, notice the word uh, here, faith. In the Greek New Testament, the Bible has the definite article there. We're all the children of God by the faith. And so the definite article is there. The faith. For you're all the children of God by the faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you, telling how they became children of God by the faith system. For as many of you, as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And because that's true, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free male nor female. For if you be Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now people won't say, well, now I'm a child of God by faith without baptism. Well, then if that's true, he says the text would read the opposite. You're not children of God by faith. For as many of you as have not been baptized into Christ, have not put on Christ. So there is Jew, there is Greek, there is bond, there is free, there is male, there is female. And if you be not Christ, then you're not Abraham's seed. And if you're not Abraham's seed, you're not heirs according to the promise. I don't like that Not do you? I will to leave it the way God fixed it. Because he fixed it right. So the faith system is what he's talking about here. And so in Hebrews 11, when you read about all of those marvelous heroes of faith, guess how chapter 12 begins. Seeing that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of, of our faith, now if you'll notice the text, the word "our" is in italics, meaning it was added by the translator. And so, if you take the word "our" out and you put the definite article in, he is the author and the finisher of the faith, and that's accurate, and that's what he is. He's the author and the finisher of the faith system. Now, naturally, we got to believe the faith system and obey it, but. There's people that didn't live under that faith system that were benefited by it nonetheless because when Jesus died, did his blood go backward as well as forward? And it covered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of those good folks that had lived under the Old Testament and done their best. So unity of doctrine, the faith system. And then he says there's one baptism. Now there's unity of practice. There's one Baptism. There's not two baptism. There's not a baptism in fire and a baptism in water and a baptism in this. There's only one valid baptism when Paul wrote Ephesians 4. Now, anybody that wants to believe there's more than one baptism, might as well believe there's more than one God and more than one Lord and one, one body and one spirit and so on. Because the Bible says there's one of each of these. Now, which one is there not really one of? Well, there's one of each one of these, and that's it. And so the Bible says there's one baptism. That's unity of practice. And so a lot of folks will look at baptism, and you know what they see? They see a pool of water. There's some people, if they're driving by the lake, and they see this group out there, and they're baptizing someone, all they see is somebody being put underwater and raised up. But I got news for you. There's more behind that picture than the wall. There's a song that I like a lot country music song that says, and she just thinks we're fishing. She just thinks we're fishing. He said, we're not just fishing. I'm making memories. There's more behind that picture than the wall. And when someone is being baptized in the beautiful name of Jesus, For the remission of his or her sins, folks, there's more than just a physical body going under in a pool of water and being raised up. There's more behind that picture than the wall. Because some people have done no more than just see a picture. They don't see the beauty and the importance of it. If you were to come in my house, you'd see some pictures. And you know what they'd mean to you? Not much. But let me tell you something. They mean a whole lot to me. You see, you're talking about family. You're talking about friends. Friends. You're talking about loved ones. And there's more behind that picture than the wall. That picture's special because it causes my memory to go back and to think of these people as we mentioned others that are so important to us. You see, when you have a baptism going on, you see a unity of practice. You see a person being buried in the watery grave of baptism. Here the preacher is, or the person immersing someone. Here the candidate is simply submitting, and God Almighty is doing the operating. good friend of mine just preached the funeral of his wife the other night, 83 years old. Alvin Guy went to have surgery, open-heart surgery. The doctor walked in, and we were there that morning when he walked in. The doctor said, Mr. Guy, you got any questions for me? He said, I sure do. He said, well, what are they? He said, how many have you killed? And the doctor looked at him and said, what did you say? He said, how many have you killed? I want to know if you're going to open my heart or my chest up. I want to know if you've killed anybody doing this. And he kind of laughed. He said, really, we've had a pretty good average, and we've not lost anyone. He said, okay, I'll let you do the surgery. Now, that was a little humorous story, but you know what? It taught a tremendous lesson. Do you want someone doing surgery on you that don't know what he or she's doing? (laughs) Not me. I've even asked my doctor, if if something ever happens to me, could you put me to sleep before you put in the (laughs) IV? He said, are you serious? I said, serious as a heart attack. I hate needles, especially if they're coming toward me. I don't mind seeing you stuck, but when you start sticking me, that's another sermon. You see, I don't like those needles. I don't like pain. And so I said, could you put me to sleep? But you see, the point is, if some surgeon is going to do something, you want to know are they qualified. God is qualified. He's never lost a case. Every time successful. He has not lost one time. And so when someone is being baptized... They are submitting. They're not doing anything but submitting. And the person that is doing the baptizing is doing something. And God is doing the operating. It's just like when you go in to have surgery. You're put to sleep. They don't want your help. Can I borrow the needle? Let me cut over here. (laughs) Not in your lifetime. They want you passive. And that's the picture you get in Colossians 2.12. Buried with him in baptism wherein you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. You will never, ever do anything that there's less work involved in than submitting to baptism. And yet people will jump up and go, that's a work, that's a work, that's a work. Well, who's doing it? I didn't do anything when Brother Eden baptized me in this baptistry right behind All I did was submit. He done the baptizing and God done the operating. And the results were successful. You see, that's the way it is when God is working. Now, the Bible says in 1 Peter three twenty and 21, the like figure whereunto, even baptism doth now also save us. Then there's a parenthetical statement, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God in the parenthetical statement by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I got a sermon I call the Resurrection Connection. And I connect everything you've got to do to be saved, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized, the church, you you just name it. And the reason why it does what it's supposed to do is because Jesus is resurrected. Without a resurrected Jesus, those would be acts, useless, void acts. But he puts the living in it when he came out of that tomb. And you know what the Bible says. Now leave the parenthetical statement off. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's your behind the picture is more than a wall. You see, you have a resurrected Jesus and because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Jesus Christ, our baptism shows unity of practice. And then there's one God, unity of worship. And so when we look at these seven ones, we see unity of organization, revelation, aspiration, authority, doctrine, practice, and worship. How do we worship God? I asked a fellow that one night, how do you worship God? He said, I go out in the woods and meditate. That wasn't my question. How do you worship God? I want to know from the word of God where you get how you worship God. God is spirit, John 4, 24. They that worship him, M-U-S-T, worship him. In spirit and in truth. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, Mark 7 7. So the Bible says there's acceptable worship and there's unacceptable. You don't believe that? Read Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, and you will. There's acceptable worship and there's unacceptable worship. Don't ever think that God's got to accept your worship just because of who you are and because that's the way you like to do it. The way I like to do it, He didn't ask. He just said here's the way I want to be worshipped and he has the right to make those dictates upon our lives because who would know better than God? And so we have one God. There's unity of worship and everybody that loves the same God and worships the same God will worship him the same way. Hopefully these passages now will help you see more than just simply being able to refute some denominational argument and I'm not uh, saying that's not good and... And sometimes needful. But I'm saying we really need to understand these passages for our own benefit and how they bless our lives. If you're not a member of that one body, that beautiful body, the church of Christ, you can be today. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10. By believing Jesus Christ to be the son of God, John 8:24. Through a repentance of sin, God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17:30 30, and 31. And so the Bible says we are to confess Jesus before men, Matthew 10:32 and 33, and be buried with him in the watery grave of baptism for the remission of sins. The Lord will then add you to his church, Acts 2:47, his body, his bride, his kingdom. Be faithful and receive a crown of life in the after a while. Maybe you've done those things and you have become unfaithful and need to come back today. Won't you do so as we stand together and sing?